Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the most central concepts running throughout the entirety of chapter three of John Stuart Mill's work on liberty is that of individuality. At certain times, he'll also talk about originality, but he has the same thing in mind, and it is indeed centered on the individual as the subject, as the bearer of it, but it has wide implications, particularly given his advocacy of the importance of cultivation of individuality. And there's several different aspects involved here. One would be in terms of the individual reading John Stuart Mill's argument. They might say, oh, I've been misliving my life. I need to start focusing on other things and cultivating myself. And Mill would certainly be quite happy to see that going on. But he's making a larger argument in the entire work about the extent to which the government or society, or pick whatever other coercive, imposing force you would like, is legitimately concerned to control, to protect, to punish, to bring power to bear upon people. And one corollary of his harm principle enunciated earlier in the work is that really these forces shouldn't stand in the way of the cultivation of individuality. And if they were indeed working for the the benefit of society, they would encourage the cultivation of individuality, a case which does not hold, according to Mill, in most societies except accidentally, and which he is trying to argue a case for in his own time, a case that's relevant to our own time. So midway through the chapter, he's got this great phrase where he says that individuality is the same thing with development. And it is only the cultivation of individuality which produces well-developed human beings. So it is possible to live a human life as a rational animal, the kind of thing that we are, without having fully or even to some degree, gone down the road of developing our individuality, of developing ourselves. We can live in a, you could say, diminished state. So in order to become a well-developed human being, we really do need to cultivate our individuality. And that may not be viable for some people given their socioeconomic or other statuses, but Mill is saying that this is really absolutely central. And he advocates something like and aesthetics of the human person and their development itself running throughout this chapter, a point made at so many different passages and places that we don't really need to belabor it. Instead, let's think about what he has to say in this chapter, answering this key question without ever raising the question as such and centering in on it, but providing answers to it at different points. We can ask, all right, so if cultivation of individuality is such an important thing, what's involved there? What's required? What do we have to do in order, if we want to cultivate our individuality or create space opportunities for others to do the same, what's needed? 
and he gives a number of different answers, one of which is primarily negative. And this is one that has drawn some criticism by later commentators who think that perhaps he goes a little bit too far. But in this work, at least, he is very clear that it requires that the person not be determined, not take their cues largely from, and he uses a couple different terms here, tradition or custom. Custom is a word that comes up a lot in this case. And we could understand this as the social mores, the web of expectations that govern our life, that tell us who's a good person, who's a bad person, who's in group, who's out group. So take, for example, uh, something like picking your nose, picking your nose in public, right? We view that as uh, disgusting behavior for the most part. We make fun of people who do that. There are cartoon characters that we see with their fingers all the way up their nose. We make memes of people. We even associate things that come out of your nose with grossness. You know, for example, when one of the presidential candidates in a recent election campaign had a bit of stuff come out of his nose and stick, I think, to his lip, people went crazy about it. Now, is Mill saying, oh, abandon that custom, pick your nose as much as you like? Not exactly, but at least this gives us an idea about what a social mos, or actually in Latin, mores is the plural of it, would, would look like. But we could think about other things as well, like do we form a line, do we not form a line? These things that we call etiquette and how we address people in emails. All of these sorts of things. It's not to say that a person won't respect social mores, but they need to do so through their own choice, not just because it is what is done. It is what is expected. So that's a rather negatively phrased, negatively understood, negatively conceptualized way of talking about this. You take away the force, the determining force of these things and substitute something else in its place. Mill uses this term spontaneity early on. Now, when we think about spontaneity, we think about on the spot, making a decision, having a response, grand romantic gestures could be spontaneous. And he, he does have in mind those as perhaps a subclass, but a much broader set of responses, choices, determinations made by ourselves coming out of ourselves. Another word for this could be authenticity or even to some degree autonomy. And he talks about using and interpreting experience. So this is actually a good place to pick this up. You know, and this is coming back to the notion of tradition. When we listen to what other people have to say about things, very often they're on point. So he says, it would be absurd to pretend people ought to live as if nothing whatever had been known in the world before they came into it, as if experience has yet done nothing towards showing that one mode of existence or conduct is preferable to another. Nobody denies that people should be so taught and trained in youth as to know and benefit from by the ascertained results of human experience. But it is the privilege and proper condition of a human being arrived at the maturity of his faculties to use and interpret experience experience in his own way. It is for him to find out what part of recorded experience is properly applicable to his own circumstances and character. Traditions and customs of other people are to a certain extent evidence of what their experience has taught them, presumptive evidence, and as such have a claim to his deference. But 
in the first place. Their experience, the experience of those of the past, may be too narrow, or they may not have interpreted it rightly. Secondly, their interpretation may be correct, but unsuitable to him. Customs are made for customary circumstances and customary characters, and his circumstances or his character may be uncustomary. Third, though the customs may be good as customs and suitable to him, to conform to custom merely as custom does not educate or develop in him any of the qualities which are the distinctive endowment of a human being. So being able to interpret experience in our own way, this is something that is valuable for us and needful for us. And it's part of how we get away from, or at least get some distance from tradition and custom. Making choices is also a central part of this. He's got this great phrase here, the human faculties of perception, judgment, discriminative feeling, mental activity, and even moral preference are exercised only in making a choice. It is through making choices and perhaps getting things wrong that we are developing our individuality out of our own character through our own choices. This is very important. So spontaneity is not simply just doing random stuff. It's this capacity to do things that flow out of ourselves and that we ourselves choose. He also talks about cultivating not just one's own understanding and not just one's will, which is in large part in this essay connected with conscience. The will holds one back rather than just doing everything whatsoever, but also our desires and impulses, things that do appear you know, rather spontaneous, but which we might view as in some respects, less ourselves and less dignified. He says, desires and impulses are as much a part of a perfect human being as beliefs and restraints. Strong impulses are only perilous when not properly balanced. When one set of aims and inclinations is developed into strength, while others, which ought to coexist with them, remain weak and inactive, it is not because men's desires are strong that they act ill, it is because their consciences are weak. So we should, in fact, try to develop our desires and inclinations, but we have to do so in a certain framework. And here is where we get to another really important part and great insight on Mill's part of this having to do with our, what we can call our social nature. So he says, it's not by wearing down into uniformity all that's individual in themselves, but by cultivating and calling it forth that human beings become a noble and beautiful object of contemplation. Now there's a, a phrase that I just left out there. Within the limits imposed by the rights and interests of others. So cultivating yourself as an individual means recognizing that you exist within a social fabric of other individuals. And you can, in fact, transgress against them, against their rights, against their interests. You could be a sadist and derive pleasure by the many different modes of experimentation of imposing pain or humiliation upon other people. But would that really be cultivation of your own individuality? Yes, but in a, a twisted way for Mill. And by not respecting the rights and interests of others, you actually damage yourself. He says that 
as the works partake the character of those who do them by the same process, human life also becomes rich, diversified and animating, furnishing more abundant element to high thoughts and elevating feelings, strengthening the tie, which binds every individual to the race, the human race by making the race infinitely better worth belonging to in proportion to the development of his individuality. Each person becomes more valuable to himself and therefore capable of being more valuable to others. So we, we're naturally, if we're cultivating ourselves, going to be other oriented. He says a little bit further, as much compression is necessary to prevent the stronger specimens of human nature from encroaching on the rights of others cannot be dispensed with. But for this, there is ample compensation, even in the point of view of human development. The means of development by which the individual loses by being prevented from gratifying his inclinations to the injury of others are chiefly obtained at the expense of the development of other people. Even to himself, there's a full equivalent in the better development of the social part of his nature rendered possible by the restraint put on the selfish part. So we become not just better morally, but fuller human beings by actually respecting the rights of others, by exercising control over ourselves when we're tempted to transgress against them. And this leads us to this great ideal of development that Mill articulates for what cultivation of individuality looks like. Great energies guided by vigorous reason and strong feelings guided by a conscientious will. So the person is not an atrophied, you know, sort of everything below rationality and will shrunken in disciplined, taken away sort of person. It's a person who actually has all of the parts, all of the portions of human nature operating at full capacity and doing so in a harmonious way, which will include some tensions within the person but which are going to be guided by rationality or understanding and will these two higher faculties of the human being, which are also what are developed through the cultivation of individuality. The last thing that we have to say here is that it may sound as if Mill is putting forth a single model or ideal for what this person looks like. And he's very clear that that is not the case. He tells us that there's no reason all human existence should be constructed on some one or some small number of patterns. If a person possesses any tolerable amount of common sense and experience, his own mode of laying out his existence is the best not because it is the best in itself, but because it is his own mode. Human beings are not like sheep and even sheep are not undistinguishably alike. And he talks about clothing fitting us. And he says that different persons require different conditions for their spiritual development and can no more exist healthily in the same moral than all the variety of plants can in the same physical atmosphere and climate. The same things which are helps to one person towards the cultivation of his higher nature are hindrances to another. And so in order to develop, as he says, our mental moral moral and aesthetic faculties, bring them to the, the degree that they're capable of. There is no one single recipe for how this ought to be done. And the individual will themselves have to take a very active role in determining how best to cultivate their own individuality. It doesn't mean that they will go without guides entirely, but 
they themselves have to be relatively autonomous. And as their individuality develops, they may engage in some processes of checking in and checking the progress of some things and readjusting and doing all those sorts of things. So that is what Mill envisions as the cultivation of individuality. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.